first thing I got to ask Alex is, uh, did you see the boxes in the bathroom? Did you, did you rifle through the files? Um, did you take any home as souvenirs? Yeah, I, I, I never got that close actually. I, uh, I, I, I never went to the, never went to the homestead and I and really never even got that close to getting into the, into the courtroom. So, uh, yeah, I was with the, uh, I was with the scrum. I was with, with a thousand angry streamers out, out, uh, out on the sidewalk, uh, all generating content. I loved reading <laughs> that piece, especially the little chants that they had. I, I, I don't even know what the temple would be, but the one where it's like, we are not a democracy. We're a constitutional Republic. <laughs> yeah. It's so funny. Also just like, yeah, a tough one, dude. Not, not an easy one. Rhythm, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. This, this, this is what happens talk. when motherfuckers have no rhythm and try to come up with chance. We are not a democracy. We are a constitutional Republic. It's just, it's too many syllables. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the Radiohead time signature. It's like, you gotta do some crazy stuff to fit that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There were, there are a lot of really wild moments that kind of popped out of that piece. Like the guys who are like, uh, I assume you're a pedophile. And then he's like, you're a sodomite. And then they do a little fist bump. That seems a bit, that seems a bit, um, like that's a bit that someone would make about these guys. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Totally. It's like, yeah, there's, there's like, there's almost nothing you can say. It's like the whole thing is cast in these, in like this extreme, extremely stark moral language where like everyone, if you're on the wrong side, like you're a pedophile, like, you know, there's, there, there, there's no degree. Everything is black or white and it's, and it's so elevated and so amped up. It's like, yeah, it's 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 hard to know how to intervene in any way. Uh, <laughs> even just to like ask questions, it's like, uh, yeah, it's it, it's it's crazy. It's crazy to witness. It's all it's all projection. They're just calling everybody what they secretly are. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I can only imagine like all the streamers out there live vlogging. They felt lost because they weren't in the the front seat of their car, um, looking into their their front facing video camera. They were out on the street like pedestrian, like the hoi polloi. Uh, <laughs> sure, they felt unmoored. Yeah, it's a scary place to be. Yeah, although amongst amongst friends, at least. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 264 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. Uh, and we are very pleased to be joined by Alex Salmon, who's a politics reporter at Slate. Um, and in addition to covering uh, just all, all of the all of the wildest and weirdest uh, things happening today in politics, has also written, I think, one of my favorite um, pieces of, of gonzo journalism <laughs> in, in recent uh, memory, um, where you, you went down to the National Automotive Dealers Association conference and, and, and really got up close and personal, um, to American capitalism. So I'm, I'm really happy to have you on, Alex, to, to talk about, about that piece. 
Hey, yeah. Thanks so much. Uh, excited to be here. That's, that's a, that's a very flattering introduction. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am, I, I think first off, I mean, we, we will get into the piece. We'll get into all the weird shit that you saw there. And also I think, uh, that it is really a dispatch from the front lines of, uh, of a, of a, of a part of American capitalism that people don't really pay a lot of attention to. But as your piece really goes into is, really, really important and powerful um, in in this uh, really decentralized way, which is why people don't really pay attention to it. But before we get into all of that, I, I wanted to ask, like, what motivated it? What, why, what drew your attention to going to NADA uh, and, and, and do it and reporting from there? Yeah, I'm trying to remember. I think um, I was reading something about, car, you know, car dealers at some point. I'm, I'm trying to remember now what it was i think the thing that really like cinched it for me was was just the the acronym itself felt like something so out of like a thomas pynchon novel that like the nada show like the, it's like the nothing show is like the most powerful political lobbying force in america <laughs> in, in some sense and like you know it's 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 you know this incredibly organized group of like you know middle middle uh sort of like middlemen with infinite political capital and, and money uh who set the the politics of this country in motion and also it's and also it's nothing and also like it's something that shouldn't you know by by most rights shouldn't exist at all um and i think it kind of just it sort of like trickled out from there and then once i started learning more about it i was like this is this is amazing uh and i have to go uh it's like the you know the journey to the middle um has to be made and uh and so yeah i had some 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 very willing editors at slate uh who you know, thankfully we're, we're happy to let me, uh, go out there and, and had to actually like cough up a pretty hefty chunk of change to get me in because, uh, my, my attempt to get a press pass was, uh, quickly, quickly denied. <laughs> yeah. And these, uh, like professional and industry association meetings are not cheap. Um, I go to some of them for my, uh, as an academic for my research, like I go to, um, the insurance, uh, industry conferences, uh, which are also their own, um, weird and interesting look into, uh, into a front of capitalism that nobody really pays attention to. But they're, they are not fucking cheap in part because they have to fund things like armadillo races and open bars that start at 10 a.m. <laughs> and then just, you know, millions and millions of dollars in lobbying fees and, you know, political expenditures and ad buys. And yeah, it's, uh, it's not easy. It's not cheap getting that stuff done. So yeah, that was my, my, my tithe, my contribution to the movement there. <laughs> I, I know Ed wants to jump in, but before, before I forget the, the acronym NADA also, the first thing it made me think of, I think you're dead on Thomas Pynchon, but it also made me think of John Carpenter's They Live because that's Roddy Piper's character is named Nada or credited as Nada. Yeah, I know exactly exactly the reference. And yeah, that also was resonant for me as well, though. though yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't think I would have thought to bring it up, but I, yeah, that's, that's a classic <laughs> one. <laughs> so I, would you be able to walk us through maybe like how this story bubbled up for you? You know, what drew your interest with uh, you know, this, this thin sludge film of, of American society, how it got on your radar, you know, what you were thinking before you went in and whether or not 
your expectations or you know preconceived idea about what it was going to be ended up lining up with what you saw on the floor um i think that like going into it i was kind of like the sort of point of, of curiosity for me was like okay the the midterms had just happened and republicans had done pretty poorly and had obviously been led astray basically by their fealty to the evangelical church and like the anti-abortion movement and um you know which led them to these incredibly unpopular abortion bans and so i was kind of like thinking okay who are the other power players in republican politics and what might they have to say about the future of the party or the future of of this organization as the as the gop kind of tries to regroup or tries to reset itself on a different trajectory that is maybe not so losing um and yeah just i think sort of a, a general awareness of of you know there was this amazing i guess i should the, the thing that really keep me off to it there's this amazing uh piece in the times about the uh the top 0.1 percent of american earners like a, it's a, a sort of close look at the actual composition of the american super rich and um you know i think one of the top five professions in, in that, that stratum is car dealers, which I was like, you know, shocked to, to realize I had no idea. Um, and so sort of going from there, knowing that, you know, this is a group of, of, of people who's incredibly wealthy, uh, and knowing how, you know, at least to some degree that they were involved in Republican politics, uh, what they had to say about, you know, where the party was going, uh, and what they wanted to see happen, Sort of was like I think the the lodestar for me was that that sort of those two facts together seemed like enough that um, showing up there would at least offer some color into these sorts of deliberations um, and I think that was more or less what I set out looking for. Yeah, another article that kept right like ringing through my mind while reading yours was this excellent piece by the historian Patrick Wyman that he uh, wrote for the Atlantic a couple years ago called the American Gentry. Um, and he's looking at this, you know, looking throughout history at these kind of these, these local, uh, you know, petty bourgeois, you know, local landholders or people who basically the, the pet, you know, a, a gentry is this kind of local, um, land owning class or local asset owning class that has, you know, in, in the small town or, or, uh, you know, small in the, in the big town, small city, um, that they live in. You know, and he's got you know places like Yakima, Washington, right? That you know, like a place you've never heard of, but has a hundred thousand people in it. And you've got he's got a list of similar places like you know Bloomington, Illinois, or Odessa, Texas, or uh, you know uh, Medford, Oregon. These places where they're they're not tiny villages; they're like big towns, small cities. Um, and often though, the, the, the richest and most powerful people in those places are people who own actual real assets. So he talks about, you know, the person who owns a, a hops field for brewing beer, the person who owns a construction company or people who own car dealerships or like fast food franchises. Um, and, and, uh, uh, you know, they hold a ton of power in these little regions. And so, and, but we don't think about them at all because I think, you know, well, you don't think about them if you are like, captured by the uh the 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 coastal elitism if we if we put it that way because i i was talking about your article with a friend of mine who um 
grew up in Nebraska and I am from Mississippi and then went to high school in South Dakota and I've lived in, you know, a suburb of Sacramento, California. And these are the places that are ruled by not the billionaire CEOs and, and financiers that we think of, but by the guy who owns three car dealerships uh, and, and like the town is his fiefdom, right? And so it's like, uh, like, Putting those two articles together, that analysis of the American gentry and the the really kind of concrete case study of car dealers, um, it, it's really, really fascinating look at the actual organic composition of class in, in American capitalism. Um, and that you're right, like, you know, these guys, it's not as if these guys are you know, rich, but not wealthy. They, they are the definition of wealthy in that they are in the top, you know, 1.1% uh, of American earners. I think it just says more to us about how the gap between the, the top 0.1% and the gap between the top 0.01%, um, which is who we actually tend to pay more attention to is like the, the 0.01 or 0.001% of people. But that gap, when you start getting into even those little fractional decimals, the gap there is so wide. It's, it's, a, it's a Grand Canyon level chasm between the guy who owns one, you know, who earns $1.5 million per year and is one of the richest people in, in the U.S. Um, versus uh, the guy who owns $1.5 billion per year and is also one of the richest people in the U.S., just on a different level. So like, the, the sort of like focus on like the hedge fund manager as a, as a um, you know, like a, a representative person in 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 an american class in the american class structure i think is like it's really interesting but it's really not representative right it's like the guy who who is is buying a new yacht this year because he needs a bigger yacht to show up his friends who have a who got a yacht uh you know that that's you know it's interesting the excesses of of of, of the system are, are i think are fascinating but also right i think it's actually more representative to say like you know, when we're talking about the one percent, we're talking about a, a you know, we're talking about a lot of people. It's not you know a couple dozen hedge fund managers. We're talking about thousands and thousands of people, and um, this is really sort of what that class is composed of. It's like it's car dealers, it's gas station owners, it's like construction company uh, contractors um, who have family businesses. I mean, I think you know we'll probably get into a bunch of this, but it's like uh, have these family businesses uh, and the tax code is written basically to advantage exactly these sorts of, of, of business formations so that they can be passed down without, you know, being subject to inheritance tax or any of these other limitations. And, you know, it's obviously very remunerative financially, but also there's a ton of political capital that comes out of these uh, organizations and, and social capital. I mean, you talk about the roles these play, these, these sorts of places play in, in like communities that are not the five biggest cities in the United States. Um, and, and you, I think you get a really clear and sort of like broader picture of, of actually how, you know, class kind of functions in America in, in, I think, you know, this one particular way, I, 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 yeah, I think that it is a sort of interesting and, and representative snapshot in, in some way. You know, one thing I think reading through the piece, reading through you talking about how this is like an integral part of the 1% that a large chunk of car dealerships have owners that make a lot of money, but also that COVID provided a bonanza to them. 
um, in kind of surging prices because of the shortages that were going on for electronics components and semiconductors uh, during uh, COVID. Um, did, what, did you get a sense that, uh, at NADA that car dealers were feeling like they needed to seize upon this opportunity in which they had like, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic kind of uh, surging their their money that they had to play around with, but also recognizing the state would probably come in and intervene to alleviate shortages affecting cars or that there might be some, you know, like discontent among people angry about the prices being jacked up so high. Like, was there a sense that it's now or never because of the pandemic or that it's now or never because of larger countervailing forces they might've been noticing for a while. You know, it's probably more the latter than the former. I think generally the relationship of these people to the state is not one of fear um, or not one of fear of, 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 you know, regulatory uh, punishment. So I, you know, the, 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 the idea that they will be, uh, you know, concerned about some, uh, you know, some reining in or some sort of regulatory action uh, with regards to their price gouging. I certainly did not get a sense that that was a concern. Um, they, you know, have a have an incredible story track record of, of using the state to their own ends and uh, furthering their own business interests uh, and not the opposite. Um, so, yes, I think that there was, you know, there's, there's an awareness of some of these larger macro trends in the economy. There's an awareness of um, you know, where the industry uh, is heading with electric cars, with direct-to-consumer sales. Those things were the cause of an incredible amount of angst uh, and anxiety and, and, and anger and outrage and, and everything else. But uh, the fact that, like, car dealerships were, are making, I think, uh, 180% more profit than they were in 2019, that was pretty much just, like, cause for celebration like it's it's good and it's getting better uh and why wouldn't it yeah there were certainly some some prophecies of doom but it was like you know things have literally never been better and 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 that's kind of also amazing it's like how is that possible you know the, the some of these macroeconomic trends have been around for 10 years i mean even selling cars on the internet was supposed to put these people up against the ropes 25 years ago and and they're making more money now than than even the pre-internet day, days, you know. So it's it, there's sort of this uh, this sort of double uh, sense or this dual sensibility, which I think actually really speaks to the sensibility of a certain political class and certainly a, uh, uh, you know just a, a yeah I guess a, a political disposition maybe uh, that like yes they're richer than ever, but also they're under attack. Also the end is nigh. Also they need to be ready for a war at any moment uh in case anyone tries to 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 take even a even a cent away from these record earnings that seems like a like every every conservative talking point at this point they're like they're all geared up ready for war ready for those liberals to come take whatever this thing or whatever away from them and i saw that like uh, ron DeSantis signed a bill recently barring like direct sell vehicles is just probably just a benefit his rich benefactors that probably are donating millions of dollars to his campaign just off the back of that. But it's, you know, going back to what Jason was saying earlier, the car dealerships, like the, the way the, a lot of them run in smaller communities, they own multiple, multiple dealerships for different makes of vehicles. And I discovered recently last summer, um, I got a job at a dealership here, uh, 
that I specifically got just so I can learn how to do maintenance on my own vehicle. And then when I figured out what I need to do, I quit the job. <laughs> and I was told by the owner That's of the dealership. That, Hell yeah. <laughs> yes. I was told by the owner of the, uh, the dealership that uh, I could no longer work for that dealership and 19 others in Washington because they were all owned by the same family. Oh, wow. What the fuck? Wow. It's it's like the the way these you know it's it's obviously just you know cartel faction, but the way that they operate is 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 astounding. I think that if you it's so cool you got to see inside of it because I feel like you know after this piece ran, I got some you know feedback from from readers and stuff who were like you know I worked a year at a car dealership and like let me tell you it was the easiest job I've ever had and I made more money than I've ever made like uh, and. You know, like, yeah, the, the way the way these things actually operate, um, yeah, I think you don't know. You, they're, they're like one of two ways to find out. Either you're on the inside and you're making so much money that you would never leave and never betray the secrets, or you're the person trying to buy the car or get the car serviced, or you know, you're 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 coming in contact with these these institutions in some way, and you leave feeling like you know you've you've had your pockets emptied and like you've been robbed blind and you're furious and. Um, and you know, there's really, there's that's really the only two ways uh, that that you would come in contact with these sorts of uh, of organizations, and um, yeah, that's that's amazing. I mean, it's it's the classic. I mean, this is why car dealer or car salesmen are the are are the kind of classic example of the the like the vulture parasitic. You know, the 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 worst person you never want to deal with. Um, but because uh, of the way the system is set up, you have no choice uh, but but to deal with them if you're in the market for for a car. I mean, I love the way you describe it um, here. And in, in in the sentence, I want to get into this really fascinating and eye-opening um, legal and political history of car dealerships that you outline in the piece that we're kind of talking around and I want to just get into it. But um, near the beginning, right before you transition into that section in the article, you, call, you describe it as you say, in many ways, you can't understand U.S. conservatism without understanding the car dealer. That middle minch of American capitalism selling a product he doesn't make at a fat enough markup to become fabulously rich rich and politically powerful. I mean, I think that's, that's exactly it though, right? Because like uh, a a really key part of this, you know, if we're thinking again about the kind of the, the class composition and class dynamics here, a key part of, um, of, of this particular class is that it's a, it's an ownership class, right? They don't quite own the means of production in the way that capital does. They don't own the car factories, um, you know, um, but nor are they uh, living off of their uh, labor in the way that a worker does, right? Um, they are instead they they are owners of assets, um, and their their wealth comes from their ownership of that access um, of that asset, and and particularly their ability to uh, charge people for access to that asset um, or to whatever good it is that they don't make again, but just sell as merchants. And so it is this, it, it has a lot of, yeah, Jeremy just said, I wonder what Mal would say about car dealerships. And that's exactly right. <laughs> <No>. He's Jeremy has <laughs> preempted know. what I was about to say, which is that it has all of the features of landlordism, right? It is a rentier class in that way. Um, but rather than, uh, 
Access, you're, you're, rather than access to um, a home to live in, you're paying for a vehicle. So you're getting a thing, but you are paying huge amounts of rent stacked on top of that vehicle's cost for access to the car dealership. Um, and then, of course, all of the other uh, uh, add-ons that come on after. And so they get, they get rent from uh, ensuring that nope, that you can't do maintenance anywhere except authorized dealers. They, and so that's a huge uh, on cost for them. Um, as well as, as I, I, I want to go through, uh, a big aspect of any landlord is securing your ability to um, control access to the thing you own. And the best way to do that is uh, with the force of the state, right? In, ensuring that nobody else can... Uh, can, can own this thing or control access to it. And so I had absolutely no idea um, that the Car Dealership Association has been so successful at limiting and in uh, 17 states making it illegal to buy cars from anyone but dealers right and so this is this is that uh, beautiful free market that uh that red states love so much at work um but could you get into this absolutely fascinating and eye-opening like political and legal history of of car dealers yeah absolutely yeah i think that like it, the 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 bill that you guys mentioned earlier that DeSantis signed in Florida is like the strongest insinuation that he's really serious about trying to become president. It, currying favor with the dealers lobby right out of the shoot is, of course, the thing that makes the most sense to do if you're a Republican politician. Um, and the fact that Elon Musk helped him launch his campaign uh, actually sort of gets to an even more ridiculous part of this of this alliance. But we can talk about that more uh, later. But um, yeah, the, the 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 suite of protections that they've been able to win. I mean, literally every state in the country has some legal protections for car dealers. There's not a single place, even in the bluest of blue states, that there aren't some legal protections uh, that are pretty substantial. Now, 17 of those states, yeah, you're outright forbidden to buy a car from a company that makes a car. Um, and in some of these places, like... Uh, that that manifests in, in just these unbelievable ways. So like in Texas, um, where Tesla has factories, if you buy a Tesla in Texas where it's made, the car has to be shipped across state lines out of Texas and then brought back in in order for you to be able to retrieve it. Like in Louisiana, I don't think you're allowed to do the, the over-the-air software updates into cars are prohibited because that's a violation of the... Um, the, the service protections that you get with these exclusive maintenance clauses. So you can't, you can't up, update software over the air because that would be a violation of the exclusive control on maintenance that these companies have. So uh, you just can't, you have to go somewhere else to get it in like in New Mexico, you can't get service um, on your car except for at a dealership. And if you have an electric car that you got from a company that doesn't have dealerships, you have to drive to a, a, an Indian reservation. Tesla's set up, uh, these places on Indian reservations that are technically exempt from state law. That's where you have to go get your car service. It's like, the stuff is so ridiculous. Uh, it, it, you, uh, you almost like can't believe it reading it uh, for the first time. And yeah, I mean, this goes back legitimately more than a hundred years. I, the, the, the way this started uh, was in 1917. Um, you had, a, you know, a handful of car dealers, a pretty, you know, a, a fairly nascent industry at this point. Um, and they, they 
it, you know, World War, World, World War One is underway. There's there's a lot of concern that car manufacturers uh, are going to be put in the in the service of uh, of wartime production, and so the dealers go to Washington to lobby, um, lobby basically to get cars uh, made exempt. Uh, well, they were whatever cars were identified as like a luxury product then, and because of that, uh, those factories were eligible for wartime production. Um, and they lobbied to get that changed. So cars were, uh, they were successfully, whatever, they were able to make cars no longer a luxury item. They got a 40% tax cut uh, on car sales on top of that. And from that moment on, it was basically like off to the races. Like every, they, they basically went state by state at that point. Um, and from there on out, you just see this incredible lobbying blitz at all levels of government. And they just start racking up these wins. And it just escalates and escalates and escalates to the point where, you know, um, I, I mean, we can go through, I don't want to go too long winded here, but like, you know, uh, you know, to the point that car manufacturers can't sell cars to the point that car dealers can't open up, you know, uh, they're legally prohibited from a car dealership opening up within a certain radius of another car dealership. You can't terminate a contract with a manufacturer. So the dealers have, uh, are basically are allowed to be the only sellers of these cars effectively in perpetuity. Like it just goes on and on and on and on and on and on. And they just do this for a hundred years, racking this up. And and then the process become like one of the most political, one of the most important political entities in the United States. Mm. I mean, even to the point where, uh, you had this quote from the Ford CEO, Jim Farley from last year, where in an investor presentation, you know, they were all, cause they're, they're all, you know, the car dealer or the car makers, the manufacturers rather seeing, you know, companies like Tesla, but then also other EV startups followed in that footstep, Lucid, Rivian, you know, doing direct to consumer sales, um, which is, they're like, Hey, I mean, the, you know, you've got companies like Ford being like, well, they're doing it. Why can't we? Like, that's going to cut out a lot of the uh, overhead costs that we have to pay for these dealerships and all of that. Like, you know, and, and you have this quote where uh, Ford CEO says, quote, get rid of all, all of it. Go 100% online. And then you're in a, a parentheses after, as I said, he later walked back that statement. <laughs> and so, but it's just this idea that like, the car dealership association and the car dealers are such a powerful group that you have the CEO of Ford being like, I, I, I was talking out of pocket there, guys. I didn't mean that. We, we love our beautiful boaters and our beautiful car dealers. Uh, and, and so, I mean, but it's a, I think it's a really telling part here of just how much of a, of a stranglehold. Um, the car dealers have managed to get for their for their industry, um, and how much of a, a you know an aggressive relationship they have with both the original manufacturers, um, but also the the legislators here. Then it's it's no mystery that. Uh, the car dealership association would be so politically active because they are themselves the product of political activism in that way. It's not, it's not like a, an activity they got into because they're like, Hey, we're making money hand over fist and you know, we need somewhere to spend that money. Let's, let's spend it on the politicians we love. It's like, no, this is baked into their DNA as an industry is being a hyper politically active group. Like the whole thing would fall apart if not for the political investments, the political activism and like, and, and right. It's like Ford hit like, 
car manufacturers hate car dealers. Like they don't like having to deal with them. They they have to sell their cars to these these uh, companies that they have no real oversight over. Um, they have to sell them, you know, below a certain price because the, the car dealers need to make their markup. Uh, and they, you know, these car dealers can do whatever they want, right? They can they can engage in all sorts of horrible behaviors and activities on behalf of the car company itself. Uh, and there's nothing they can do. They they just you know they they would they would happily get rid of these uh, th- this entity if they could. They can't do it. And 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 that's I think is a, is is kind of a, another part that's so interesting to me is that like yeah, car manufacturers hate car dealers. Like environmental groups hate car dealers. Civil rights groups hate car dealers because obviously the way that they sell cars to people of color is incredibly racist. They you know they target them for. For shitty financing, they you know they give them worse prices because all the pricing is opaque and it's all based on haggling. Um, I, like libertarians hate them because obviously they're so opposed to anything that resembling a free market. Everybody fucking hates them. <laughs> and yet, like you know, and that's a pretty if you if you put all those interest groups side to side, you say that's a pretty formidable. Uh, group of of, uh, of of that's people. an unholy coalition right there totally you literally have everyone <laughs> with the yeah, gun out exactly and it's like and all those people combined are totally powerless in the face of this organization like, Man, that, it, it, that's how robust they are it's so uh it's like you know facing down all the forces of heaven and hell and who wins the Ford owner or the Ford franchise owner yeah, or whatever, right? right? Like, the fucking the guy who uh, sponsors the community T-ball team um, and the, the 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 potluck dinner every Thanksgiving for the local church, right? It's like that guy versus all forces of heaven and hell, and it's uh, that guy wins every time. Oh, it makes me makes me wonder if uh, when they when they're at these these conventions and i don't know if you've ever heard them over overheard them talking like this before alex you know you think about all the all the uh, car brands that are obsolete now like pontiac and oldsmobile or saturn you know what happened to the uh, oldsmobile pontiac dealers like do they just talk about them as they've like just just it's like well i'm glad i didn't own those dealerships like uh what's his name did down the road and now he has to work at my dealership and i i gave him the worst possible job because he was an asshole to deal with when he owned the dealership yeah, I that I that I don't know the answer to. I uh I I do think that they that as those companies have declined or as those brands have have uh gone extinct, uh I think one of the one of the obligations that these car manufacturers have to meet is I think they have to buy out these dealerships. Um and so when you get firms like that that are circling the drain, like one of the one of the financial outlays they have to meet is buying out uh dealerships. So even when they're losing, they're still winning uh somehow which i think is you know kind of core to the whole affair man just just absolutely zero risk being a car dealership owner it's it's a totally de-risked industry um in in favor of big jim and also making me realize that i've i've owned two cars in my life uh the first one was an oldsmobile and the second one was a pontiac <laughs> whatever th- whatever the next car i own don't buy stock in that company cuz <laughs> it will also go under <laughs> no more cars no more cars for you um so so how do you get the bastards out you know like what, like what what is the point of intervention what is the wedge what's the lever here is it like 
a fucking state by state campaign to roll back the laws that they have? Is it like a large, like, is it like a, an even wider coalition of the willing to like invade their, you know, their turf? Like, how do you defeat a lobbying group that by all accounts not only has like a really dynamic and robust political class around it but also has like a ground game in every state and also just like has at least like a cognizant enough strategy to preempt any threats or potential threats to their power it's a great question it's it's such a good question and i think it actually is a question that's really urgent in a lot of ways that should have you know i think we should have already known the answer to that because um like the fact that that the Biden climate strategy is so reliant on electric cars, right? Like that's a huge, huge, huge tranche of this, of this decarbonization strategy of this climate strategy is like, we're going to get everyone into electric vehicles. That's a huge component of it. Um, if you were like the De- Democrats are, are, are canny political operators, you would say, well, they're, if they're going to, if they're going to allocate hundreds of billions, trillions of dollars uh, for getting people into electric cars, they should do so with the idea of crushing this entity, crushing this political entity, which is what car dealers primarily are, right? Uh, And to ensure A, that the policy is actually enacted and B, that it will help, it will help Democrats in their, you know, electoral ambitions down the road. And like the fact that they passed this, you know, both this infrastructure bill and then the IRA and never really took up the question of what to do with car dealers uh, or, you know, how, how to, how they were going to allow them to interface with this this pot of money, I think, is it was a huge, huge mistake. I mean, just a you know, just just short sighted in a way that's it's almost hard to understate because you have a real chance to to you know just to sort of crush the uh, crush your enemies. I mean, that you know that should be kind of the point of politics, right? Is to, is is to do that, and that is something that is not part of the Biden theory of politics at all. But like. If you don't do that, what you're doing is, you know, sending billions or trillions of dollars of public funding to help prop up this group, which is then going to take that money, plow it back into Republican uh, campaigns and policies, and uh, and 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 they're going to see you right right out of office. So it's like, I think that's a question that would have been great for us to have surfaced in a in a, in a national debate on a policy level like two years ago. Mm. Um, <laughs> would be really useful. And I think that actually, I, I don't get the sense that they took it that seriously. And I think that's sort of one of the things that I came away from this event thinking like, uh, you can't just like, I mean, we've seen it a million times. You can't just like let the market just hope that the market's going to do the right thing for you. And you can't also say like, oh, we're going to put some more money to incentivize this thing, and that thing and nudge it in a certain direction and hope it's just going to work out. It's like, that's not how it works, especially not with car dealers. You can't just nudge them and hope it's going to work out. It never does. They will find a way. That's why, you know, I, w- I and I've talked with you about this. When I was surprised by, um, like, Stoller's reaction to your piece and trying to in- insist there was elitism in there. But, like, like you just pointed out here, and, like, I think it's pretty obvious when you read the piece, like, the, this is documenting like a really sophisticated operation. Like, yeah, there's some characters in here. There's some really weird folks you talk to in this piece. But this is like, this is a well-oiled machine that, like we just said, like you just said, there's no easy fix to it. It's it's not just a bunch of schlubs. Like they represent and protect the schlubs, I'm sure you know. But this these are these are fucking tigers that have like successfully. Uh, 
you know, found a position where it doesn't really fucking matter how many people hate them. It doesn't matter what the national federal policy is and direction of the political economy for climate or energy is going to be. They are in an unassailable position, it feels like, right? And that requires, like saying that requires taking them seriously and figuring out what to do requires taking them seriously, which I feel like the very obvious thrust of this piece, like we are not taking seriously this fact of our political economy. And yeah, there's some weirdos in here. There are some really funny guys. Um, but there's also like a very serious threat. Uh, if we're interested in climate change, if we're interested in political, you know, in, in political struggle, if we're interested in figuring out what to do about any number of issues, if they have anything to do with cars, these people are going to gum that shit up and fuck it up and kill it. Right. And they're like, they're just not coal miners. They're just mm-hmm. not people that are working in the mines toiling away, putting their lives on the line to yeah. do like backbreaking menial work. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just, it's just not the same. And, uh, and, and the other thing is that like, right, they have the power. They absolutely have the power to thwart this climate stuff and they're succeeding. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the other crazy thing is that like, mm-hmm. we already see that it's working and there, you know, after I went to the, the Sierra club published this study that, that, uh, about, uh, car sa- electric vehicle sales, uh, nationwide, they found that two thirds of car dealerships had no electric vehicles available, and half of them, uh, their owners said that they would not offer electric ve- electric vehicles under any circumstances. And that means that, like, for all the carrots in the world, for all the financial incentives that have been that have been handed out to this, these people to just kindly, you know, sort of like participate in 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 this transition uh, in a way that will be massively remunerative for them personally. They are still like absolutely not, and they won't do it. And and you know, it's like, will will electric vehicles become commonplace eventually? Maybe so. But the difference between them being commonplace in twenty fifty and twenty thirty is is gigantic when you're talking about climate change, right? It's like it's not like oh, some marginal thing where like oh, if we get it by twenty sixty or twenty thirty, like whatever. It's like no, that the, the whole game is in between those thirty years, right? Like it's like that's kind of all or nothing. And so you can't just be like, well, whatever. They'll you know, it'll happen eventually. It's like. It, it won't happen eventually. That's just, you just can't say that. Uh, and yeah, you know, I, think- I mean, the, the, you know, I don't, I don't want to get too into it cause it's not even worth the oxygen, but I mean, Stoller's response is so baffling as is everything he does. I mean, the man is, the man was born in the bathroom of a think tank and, and, and never <laughs> left. Right. Like, uh, <laughs> uh, but, but it is based on this ironically based on this caricature because, you know, in, in, in essence, his critique uh, or his thread based on reading the headline and not the article uh, was that like this is this is itself you know I was being like uh, you know cheeky when I said coastal elitism earlier he was being very serious right that like this is based on some like cultural coastal elitism that you don't you know it's because the the car dealerships are the the salt of the earth midwestern you know people you know but it's ironically based on this caricature of the like the 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 valiant um car dealer as like the the breadbasket you know heart and soul of american capitalism which it is but not in the way that you want or think they are right for all the reasons we've been talking about and and i do want to get deeper into the electric vehicle bit which is a a, a kind of a really important thread throughout your article but also a really important thread um throughout or theme throughout the the NADA conference um, and and a really contradictory one here as well. Like, I think you're exactly right that like 
rooting out and confronting this lobbying group um, is something that we should have done decades ago. Uh, and, and the only reason why we don't talk about it is because unlike, even though they spend, as you outlined, like far more on lobbying, um, both at a federal and local level than the NRA does, um, it's, it, you know, there's obviously a big difference in terms of guns and cars, even though uh, car, cars uh, kill far more people um, than guns do uh, every, every single day in the U.S., right? And um, But we can't have that conversation. Nobody's ready to have that conversation. It also seems like an inherently unpolitical um, topic, whereas guns are an inherently politicized topic. So all of that makes sense. But also, I think the, the rubber is really hitting the road here when it comes to electric vehicles. And I want to talk about the contradictory response to EVs that you saw now that too, because like in the official um, conference pamphlets and so on, you know, the slogan was "Nada is all in on EVs," and they had, you know, and they they had space for uh, talks and seminars and presentations on how to sell EVs, how to get, uh, you know, the the tax subsidies and tax credits and all that from EVs. In other words, how you as a car dealer, can make a ton of money selling electric vehicles. Um, and and you went to those and they were all uh, very sparsely attended. Nobody cared about it. The overriding sentiment was um, extremely anti-EV, despite the, the organization itself trying to push a pro-EV because EV is good for business message. So could you talk about the kind of contradiction here between like the organization and the, the rank and file uh, car dealership owners and their, their, their kind of uh, approaches to the EV question? Also, just, just to add to the, to the Stiller critique very quickly, I will say that the, the Federal Trade Commission has singled out car dealerships as like one of the top offenders in the American economy, and they're going so hard after car dealers. And Lena Khan, who runs the FTC, is Stoller's favorite person on the planet. And I don't see how you can reconcile those two things. Uh, anyways, you can't. Uh, <laughs> you can't. Well, set that aside. Because yeah. um, Matt Stoller is a bundle of contradictions with one purpose, which is to find the most uh, not obviously conservative way to be anti-leftist. <laughs> that, that's his whole uh, mission in life. And he's very successful at it. Many try. Uh, it's, it's a hard character to play, min-maxing the annoying liberal wonk. Um, <laughs> and, and a lot of people in D.C. try. Most fail. But, but when you succeed, it's one of the most powerful character classes out there. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, so with the EVs, right, so at, at a very basic level, you would say that, you know, the fact that they're going to try to get every American uh, car driver out of an internal combustion engine into an electric vehicle is a giant business opportunity for the people who are the only ones legally allowed to sell you a car. Um, that, you would think, is, was, is a giant potential boom for the industry, but the problem is, of course, that um, that EVs are actually just you know like they're just better. They're just it's just a better product. So there's a lot less in the way of maintenance, and because of the way this thing is structured, um, car dealers make the majority of their money on maintenance. Like the, it's the exclusive licensing of the maintenance stuff. It's the warranties. It's all this, all these various ways that they 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 bilk you are are largely through through maintenance and, and servicing. And because there's so much less of that with with an electric car that doesn't need its oil change, it doesn't, you know, the wear and tear is generally much less. Um, 
there's just less there is less of a profit machine inside an electric car than there is inside of a gas powered car and so yeah the 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 actual you know the actual event the actual organization was saying like you know look here are these billions and billions and billions of dollars in incentives um you know here's this giant market opportunity for you guys uh like we can't we can't fight this like let's make it part of our sort of mission or whatever but the actual experience of the people who were there was you know they would have there was the uh the the EV solution center which was like tucked off in the far corner of the event it was so far away it was the only place where there wasn't free booze uh or free money or anything else um and they would have these events and people would you know they were keynote speakers and stuff and um the first one i went to was there was a guy named uh named buzz who was the self self-appointed uh EV evangelist the evangelist um and uh he he was given a talk that was pretty straightforward. Uh, and you know, after a few minutes of being there, there was like a heckler who came running down the aisle, uh, shouting objections, uh, to his, to his, you know, really, you know, fairly insipid sort of, uh, sales, just they were talking about like sales techniques. Um, and you know, who like grabbed the mic and, and, uh, basically like, you know, challenged him and then, and, and basically brought the presentation to an end. Um, and then from there on out, it was like, you know, the, the keynote speakers like Greg Gutfeld from Fox News would, was, you know, he was like making all these jokes. None of them were landing. He was like bomb. He was, he was just bombing through this whole keynote. And then he's like, you know, I love gas. Everyone, everyone goes wild. And it's like, and that it was, it was, it was basically that the whole time. It was like, he was like, I've never seen an electric tow truck. Everyone loses it, you know, and, and, uh, and it was just like, that was the whole experience. It was like either when they were, when people were talking about EVs, even in a, in a fairly sort of neutral way, it was like either there were hecklers or no one would show up. Uh, and then if someone said something negative about EVs, it was like people went nuts for it. It was like, everyone was like, absolutely. Um, you know, there was a, a, you know, a joke about an electric Hummer and how no one's, and no one wants one of those. Everyone loses their minds over that. And so it's like, it was like the, 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 that combination uh, of things was like, well, you, you get a pretty strong sense of where these people are at in terms of their orientation towards uh, towards electric vehicles. And like, yes, there's a there's a material element to this because uh, they make slightly less money off of them or, or substantially less money off of them. But at the same time, there's a huge ideological dynamic uh, here as well. And I think that's really is important when trying to make a sense of, of, of all of that. Yeah, I mean it's pure ideology. The the gut felt thing made me laugh for for a few reasons because I mean the man bombs on his own his own show on Fox News, um, but uh, uh, but uh, it also it was one of the moments where I was yelling <laughs> while reading because you know it's like I've never seen an electric tow truck. And I was like, you dumbass! Uh, electric vehicles have more torque. They have instant torque than gas. <laughs> they could do more work. They, they would be better tow truck. I was yelling. I was like. But no one actually cares about the mechanics, right? Because it is ideal. It is ideology at the end of the day, um, which is very kind of you know. It's the ironic aspect here as well about like that you are selling a uh, a mechanical object, right? Like a you're selling a machine, but ultimately nobody cares about the machine itself. They care about the the ideology that's wrapped up in the meaning of that machine um not what the machine actually is or what it can actually do 
Right. Because they're, you know, the, the product itself is basically irrelevant to the to the actual existence of, of car dealers, right? It's just they just managed to sort of hammer down this position. They've 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 managed to establish a choke point and uh and they get to extract rent based on that choke point. Uh you know, what they're what they're renting doesn't matter. They don't care they don't ultimately care that much about that, right? It's just it's all about actually the position and the politics and and of course like right, the fact that electric vehicles would be better for towing that doesn't you know it's like they're not they're not mechanics they don't care about that like you know uh and and i yeah i think you're i think you're right that's a really good way of putting it it's like yeah it's 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 so secondary it doesn't even factor in Hmm. the buzz guy is interesting too because you know you talk about how uh, buzz wasn't discouraged by pushback he assured me just like he wasn't discouraged after his colleagues at the dealership where he worked nicknamed him the socialist (laughs) 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 it's like uh for 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 caring about uh evs but the 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 way in which the uh all of the industrial policy um with Biden right now is wrapped up in clean tech and green tech and with EVs being a big part of that uh i i just wonder how much the Biden administration has had or maybe is now having conversations about the the distribution aspect of this right because it really does seem like one thing to um, create a lot of funding and subsidies for industry, which is ultimately what like the Inflation Reduction Act is, what all of Biden's industrial policy is, is it's, it's about creating sort pots of money and subsidies to incentivize private markets to do stuff, right? And to incentivize consumers to do stuff. It's not really industrial policy in the sense of like the state doing things because if it were then the distribution aspect would not be a problem i mean you you pass a, an executive order that says electric vehicles can be sold direct to consumers um and then that's federal right or you create a network a infrastructure a federal infrastructure of uh, charging stations of dealerships of whatever it is to actually service, uh, sell and maintain, um, electric vehicles. But all of that requires the state doing things rather than the state providing money and incentives for other people, um, to do things. I don't know. Have you had any conversations with anybody? Um, or have you heard anything from, uh, any of the, 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 these actual real like logistic policy issues around um, the, the, the distribution of EVs. I, I honestly haven't. Um, I've, I've talked to some people about implementation of, of IRA stuff. And I think that there is an awareness of, you know, the fact that this exists. Um, I think there's a lot of belief that like, you know, that the industrial policy model that, you know, if you, if you, you know, if you if you incentivize stuff, if you if you put the carrots in the right place, like the results will come. And I think that the one thing that you just haven't seen in that is just the wielding of the stick, which I uh, I think you just have to. I think you have to do that. I mean, like Biden is his own man; and he has his own theory of governance, and um, you know that obviously hasn't been part of it to this point. He really has, is not someone who wants to punish his political enemies. But like Jesus, you know, it's like. Republicans and unions, right? It's like every chance they get to crush unions, they will take it. If it, you know, uh, if they can, if they could tack it onto a signature bill, that's even better. Uh, whereas in this case, you know, we have this opportunity to, to, to do something like that and, and it, they, they don't take it. Uh, 
Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, uh, I just think that at a, at a really fundamental level, I think there was an awareness of this. I don't think this sort of the actual sort of understanding that like uh, they basically asked the the class of people who hate them the most and are the most able to thwart them to deliver their signature policy. I mean, that's ultimately what's happened, right? Is they 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 yeah. do this thing and they said, "This is our signature policy. This is our legacy." probably Biden's legacy as president and they, and they brought it to a class of people who is incredibly radicalized, incredibly conservative, deeply invested politically and ideologically in this not happening. And also actually the undoing of this entire administration. And they said, uh, please, please deliver this for us. And it's like, well, that's not going to go over that. Well, uh, it's just like, you know, even the best case scenario, there's just, you know, it, it they're not going to take it lightly, I think. And, and, um, you know, there. I should say there are a ton of smart people who've worked on the IRA. There are a ton of smart people who are doing policy implementation who think about these things in the Biden world. I'm sure some of them are aware of this. I hope some of them saw this piece, uh, but I don't know that I would say that there's like a really serious strategy to engage with at this this sector and like it, you know, to crush it or whatever, which maybe is necessary. I mean, when, when you when you when you frame it in that way, uh, it does make me realize that Bidenism is uh, a warmed over Obamaism because uh, this is exactly what Obama tried to do with healthcare. Um, rather than with climate change, Obama tried to do this with healthcare, which is you uh, you you mandate uh, coverage, you put the carrots in the right place, uh, and then you say, "All right, private health insurers, please step in and provide all the healthcare." now <laughs> and they say fuck you we hate you <laughs> <laughs> right right absolutely oh, yeah, yeah any good news <laughs> <laughs> uh, i mean you did get think, to see nelly so that was pretty cool <laughs> yeah 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 great to see nelly uh i got a, i got a i got a message from smash mouth after the piece ran and they said that they uh had no idea that there were that car dealers were so political and that they uh you know would have <laughs> they were going to send a mean message to their booking manager or whatever. Uh, <laughs> Hell yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> um, so that's something. Um, no, I, mean, I think that there, you know, I think that there are, you know, I look, the, the direct to consumer model is kind of working in some ways, right? Like, you know, far be it for me to, to celebrate Tesla or Elon Musk or, or venerate him in, in, in any sort of like fashion that is unearned or, you know, is going to, is going to scan in, in a dubious way. But like, uh, they, that is, you know, they're selling a lot of cars and they're doing it without car dealers. Like Elon Musk is, is engaged in a different political, uh, operation. And he has also allied himself with the Republican party and is going to route his profits into, you know, uh, their coffers in, in a different manner. But like, uh, this stuff is, you know, they're, it's head, it's heading in a direction where you can see like, you know, uh, how, things would go without dealers. Like you can see that there, you can see evidence of a world beyond this. Um, the question is just, I think ultimately like how fast it gets here. Uh, and, and, you know, I would imagine that, you know, like any sort of like counter revolutionary force we've seen across American history, like it can drag these things out for a long time. I don't know. Uh, I don't think it's all bad. Uh, but I, you know, I, I don't think it's great. <laughs> Uh, the more you learn, the the worse it, it feels. And there's all these. I mean, it's wild because there are all of these little like hidden 
like very large but hidden pockets uh, of of capital and influence. And and I, and I think uh, I mean your article is really just a, a, a perfect. It, it is the uh, a perfect example of why going to these like uh, in industry and professional organizations conferences is really the best way to see the market right like we've talked about this before um on on TMK because you know I, as an academic my research is on the uh, insurance technology industry so i go to insurance conferences uh and i go to uh, uh insurance technology conferences and and like i went to one last year um, and uh, every year is the InsureTech Connect, which is the largest insurance technology conference in the world. And it happens in Vegas uh, every single year um, at the Mandalay Bay Resort. And they always also have, I mean, it, it, it is similar in kind, but it is blown away in degree by the, uh, the NADA conference because I feel like the car dealers are, you know, insurance at, at heart is still a, a buttoned up industry. It's a very professional industry, even though they, they, you know, the, the, the conferences every, uh, night is a different, uh, social event or reception or party and it's all open bars and buffets and, uh, on, on the, the, the last year, there was a, a, a big conference on the Mandalay or a big concert on the Mandalay Bay's artificial beach. And it was a UB40 who's fa- the, <laughs> the no famous way. for red, red wine <laughs> in the eighties. Although I did hear the, a couple years ago before I started going, they did have ludicrous play at the insurance technology conference. And so, um, <laughs> and so, but it's like, uh, you know, these conferences are absolutely insane spectacles because it is also a way for people in the industry to go and have like big parties and 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 let loose on the company's dime um, or on the dime of big sponsors. Um, but it is also the the I I've been very adamant in my research and that thing and your article proves it that like this is where you the market you know we talk about like things that are happening in the market but for the most part the market is not like an actual place you can go to like see the market in action um, but I feel like these conferences are the closest thing you can get to actually going to the market and seeing what is happening on at the market and what people people are doing and talking about and how they're thinking about the market um, and finding these these uh, these particularly powerful associations like this and going to their conferences um, is I, I, I think like it just reveals so much more than you could ever learn by um, just trying to 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 read about it going there and actually getting a sense of the the people and the place. Wait, wait, wait. I mean, we haven't actually talked a lot about the the vibes there and your your sense of going there. So maybe we could wrap up with some with some. Uh, uh, we've we've been doing a lot of vegetables. Maybe it's time for a little bit of dessert before we wrap up. But could you could you give us a rundown of um, of the the place and the the immaculate vibes at Nada? 
Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, you know, just to add a little, I I think you're right. That it's like, just great to see the way that these people talk to each other, like the way that they actually communicate with one another, as opposed to, you know, communicate for public consumption is I think, you know, is incredibly revelatory. Um, and yeah, so, I mean, just, you know, astonishingly decadent, uh, scene here. Like the, the opening night party that I went to was like, I think that, there must have been a do- there were at least a dozen open bars. There were these giant bathtubs uh, full of uh, beer on ice. There were at, at all at, all at one time. There were multiple cover bands playing. There were multiple DJs. There was like uh, um, what are they? I mean, they had like stilt walkers and like tr- you know trick ropers. There was like line dancing. There was like a blackjack. Uh, table and like a whiskey saloon. They had like a casino set up. Um, they had like live animal entertainment. So there were supposed to be uh, armadillo racing, but that got canceled. And so they, they brought in a, a, a like a just a just a absolutely downtrodden looking donkey and weighted it up with beer and, and marched it around the uh, the venue so everyone could take free beer from the donkey. And there were you know there were like male and female dancers. Um, and it was just like, it was going on like that for hours there, you know, there, the, I mean, the amount of like barbecued meat was just, you know, astounding. It was like, uh, it, I so many differentiated pork products. I had, you know, I was learning, I was learning so much about the, uh, about the, about the cuisine of, of the grill. Um, and then, yeah, it was just, you know, uh, it was like that until, uh, until Brad Paisley came on and played a private show and everyone, you know, knew all the words. And, and, uh, and then the next morning it was like, you go to the convention, it's eight in the morning. There are open bars every 75 feet. Uh, and all of the booze is free. Everyone's drinking there. There were like these spin and win games where they were just like giving away cash. It was like, you know, it was like the reverse casino. It's like, you, you don't pay to play, but you come away with money. And, uh, it was just, yeah, everything. Yeah. People were doling out cash left and right and, and drinking all day long. And then at night it was like private clubs rented out and like, you know, it was like Nelly played and, and smash mouth played and sugar Hill gang. And like, um, you know, these private dinners at these steakhouses and like, and I, I you know, people would tell me like, you know, you're only getting invited to like the medium stuff. Like there's a whole nother register of these parties that if you're in the know, you get, you, you'll get into. And it's like, it was just like, you know, by the end of it, it's, you know, you just like, I was like, I'm never going to drink again. Like, it's just, just to even just to keep up, you know, just to stay in the, and I, you know, I'm a professional. I was, I was, I was staying focused, but you know, it's just, just astonishing. Like the, the, yeah, the decadence is incredible. And it's like, and why wouldn't it be like, they've made more money this year than they've ever made. Like they've got money to burn. Uh, and, and, uh, why not celebrate? And if it's, you know, if the end times are coming, you've, you know, twice as much reason to, uh, to, to really live it up. So, um, yeah, it was like, it was incredible. I, I, uh, I, I don't think I've ever been, it, like, you know, it's like an adult frat party for 72 hours, uh, basically <laughs> nonstop. Yeah. With the, with the amount of decadence you had access to, I cannot imagine the, the levels of perversion, uh, and abhorrence that were happening at the levels you did not have access to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, this has been great. I, I think on that point that they're ma- they've been making more money than ever, right? You have quote that the cars were selling themselves, you know, just flying off the lot. 
we've talked a lot on on TMK as well about like the uh, um, uh, the supply chain and manufacturing for microchips, um, and of course that hit the car industry really hard. The the scarcity and expensiveness of of, of microchips, but that also I'm sure trickled down to a booming business for the car dealers because they're like. You know, the stock is low, which means you can jack prices up and which means that you are clearing out your stock. You're not sitting on on cars on the lot for for months or years at a time. Um, They are flying off the off the lot. And so which also I think is just uh, the the, the perfect point to wrap up on is that um, there's always a winner uh, with with everything. Right. In a lot of cases, it is. You know, as we've talked about, and as we all know, you know, with COVID, um, the you know tech stocks, and especially Amazon, and these companies went through the roof, and so they were the winners of the pandemic. You know, we you, the microchips are in shortage, which means that um, it's hard to get. Uh, computers, it's hard to buy everything that has a microchip in it. Well, you know, car dealerships are the winner there, right? It's like at the end of the day, all of these disruptions, there's someone that's winning from them. And it's usually the worst people in the economy who are, are the most well placed to, uh, to win the biggest. Yeah, that's well put. Yeah, it's right. It's new cars, it's used cars. Like every, you know, every clunker, every piece of shit that they couldn't unload before was going for, you know, uh, above asking price and, um, yeah, it's been right. It's just the COVID economy has been very favorable to people who had the political, you know, willpower and and, and capital to put themselves in the position to to reap those rewards. Well, this has been uh, really great. I really enjoyed reading your, your piece. Yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> always, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. In, in, in new and interesting ways for TMK. We yeah. don't, you know, no one can say that we're not innovative, that we just remain stagnant. <laughs> we, we find new and interesting ways to be uh, depressing. And <laughs> right. no, it's, it was really great. I mean, just um, we will, of course, have a link to um, this article, which everybody must go read because we. We really did only, um, we didn't hit everything in there. There's so much more um, based on on your on-the-ground reporting and the, you know, we were hitting a lot of the, all the big broad points, but there's a lot more detail in the piece that people should definitely go check out. So we'll have a link to that. We'll have a link to your latest and the Trump streamers, of course. But um, is there anything else you want to direct people's attention to or plug, Alex? Jeez, I don't think so. I think that's probably it. Um appreciate you guys having me on it's been really fun of course thanks for coming on and talking with us yeah hopefully you'll go to uh nada again next year and then we can uh, have you back on (laughs) to talk about (laughs) about year two (laughs) yeah that sounds great who's the uh who's who's the favorable uh musical guest next year you guys think (laughs) i don't know the the one thing that i heard was that the year before that vanilla ice played it was a huge hit i think uh People are missing Vanilla Ice this year. So. Oh, Jesus fucking Christ. I don't know. I don't know who's going to follow up. Yeah, follow up Nelly. Uh, but uh, yeah, they we'll should hit up, uh, they should, uh, hit up Snow and see if he's available too. Or is he too busy trying to hawk uh, Forever Chemicals? <laughs> I could be wrong, but doesn't Sir Mix-A-Lot own some car dealerships? 
Like, I think he's a big entrepreneur in Seattle who owns Listen, a number of weird businesses like that. So, uh, you got to launder that money the, somehow. <laughs> that's <you know>. right. <laughs> that is <laughs> the, so the, funny. The call's <laughs> been put out. Put out, put out. Thanks a ton, Alex. This has been great. And uh, everybody else can find us at patreon.com slash this machine kills for additional premium episodes every single week. Uh, And so until next time, later. Adios.